Well, I'm going to go ahead and open us with a word of prayer, and then we will get started and with our study. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be gathered together again as your children. I thank you for the time of prayer we've just had where we can bear one another's burdens and lift one another up. And I pray, Lord, that you put it on our hearts this week to continue to pray for each other throughout the week. And I pray now as we begin today in earnest our study of the book of Joel that you give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would help me be able to articulate truth clearly and understand what's here. And I pray for all of us, not just to learn more, but to be able to apply the truth in our lives. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as some of you were here last week for our introduction, we are today beginning our verse-by-verse study of the book of Joel. So if you haven't already done so, you can open up to Joel chapter 1 and... I mentioned a few things last week that I was concerned about. One, I was concerned about finding good materials to accurately deal with the text because of the challenges that come from the study of Hebrew and and the dearth of good, conservative, I believe this is the Word of God type commentaries that are out there on Old Testament books. But I also was concerned very much, I want to be able to apply it to us in a way that matters. And I asked you last week, to read the book of Joel. It's a short book. There's only three chapters. And I know from conversations and communications that many of you did. And and if you're like me, when you read it, one thing jumps out at you. When you look at Joel and you read things, at least for me, I can't help but seeing some parallels to America with some of the things that are being talked about. And so I'm going to start out today qualifying something, but I don't want to go too far afield, but as I go through this book, there are going to be many times where I do draw parallels with our culture and what we see in the book. Because I do believe there are distinct warnings in this book that have applicability across the millennia and certainly would apply to us. But I want to clarify something before I get started so that we don't miss the point of our study of the book of Joel. And I want to say it this way, and again, I I hesitate to do this, but I think it's important. We need to understand as we read this that in the biblical view of history, America as a nation is not God's chosen people. God chose the nation of Israel to be his people thousands of years ago. And there's a blessing to Abraham and to his seed that is remarkable. And we are blessed by that through Jesus Christ. But if America is viewed in any place in Scripture, and of course the word America is not there, but if we're viewed in anywhere, we as a people would fit into the category of Gentiles with others. Now, why do I say this? Because I'm going to reference those parallels that really exist between our country and the warnings of Joel. And at times I'm going to emphasize those warnings. But here's what I don't want to happen. 
I don't want in the teaching and in us hearing and reading, I don't want us constantly thinking about what those people out there need to hear. Because it lets us off the hook. Is Joel relevant and applicable? Of course it is. I read it last week. I could read it over and over. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I don't have much scripture memorized. I, I do know that scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Joel is a part of that. And I am encouraged, as I started studying this week, there's a lot of applicability here. Not only are we going to see a lot of things that help us, but we're going to see a biblical view of history laid out that should really encourage us. But the temptation, because I've heard it ever since I've been saved, is for people to say, well, if America doesn't do this, then. Well, that may be true, but that's not the point of Joel. The point of Joel is to God's people. I'm going to be talking to us as American Christians, the people in this room. Joel is written to God's people. It's written to you and me. Do I believe there are lessons and warnings that apply to America? Absolutely, I do. And there'll be times when I talk about that. But that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is to call God's children to repentance. So my caution is, let's don't get too caught up in looking at what they need to hear and miss what we need to hear. I'm praying that for myself as I'm praying that for you. Those people out there need to hear something. What they need to hear is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to come to faith in Christ. I would love for there be such an outbreak of evangelism and the work of the Spirit of God that America was brought to its knees because individual Americans came to faith in Jesus Christ and the country as a whole was walking with Christ. But that didn't happen. We want it to happen. We pray for it. But again, there's going to be application for America. But don't misunderstand or get caught sidetracked when I make those applications and miss that the biggest message of Joel is to you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to begin setting the table for our study and I'm going to read directly the first 12 verses because I'm going to address the first 12 verses and I'll tell you in just a minute how but follow along with me in yours. I read from the New American Standard but Most versions are very similar. So follow along with me. I'm going to read this entire section and then I'll introduce our outline for this morning. Joel 1, 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. Verse 4, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake drunkards and weep, and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. 
For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Now, as I also alluded to last week, uh, the outlining of this book is challenging, and this first part proved no different. But the outline is basically this. We're setting the stage for the lessons of Joel. We're setting the stage for the lessons of Joel because everything that flows in the book is premised on what's going to occur in these first 12 verses. So in setting the stage for the lessons of Joel, this is going to take more than one week, but going to be a three-part outline. And I'm going to get to, I believe, even the third point today, Lord, Lord willing, but I'll elaborate the third point next. But first is this, setting the stage for the lessons of Joel. The first point is this, we need to see the true messenger of Joel. The true messenger of Joel. Verse 1 is very brief, very direct. It's not uncommon in prophetic and poetic literature. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, I explained in my introduction to the book last week that that's all we know about the author of this book. There's many people going by the name Joel in the Old Testament. This is the only reference to this Joel. And his father is nowhere else mentioned in the Old Testament. So, it seems clear that he was well known enough to the people to whom he was writing, which was the southern kingdom, the reference says Judah, it's where Jerusalem was. They were familiar enough with him that by saying Joel the son of Pethuel, they knew who he was, but that's all we know about him. We don't have his background, we don't know where he was from, we do know, based on what we'll see later, that he was familiar with what was going on in Jerusalem, particularly the temple and what was happening there. But the point that I'm trying to make is the man Joel is in some respects not that critical. He really existed. I really believe his dad was who the scripture says he is. But this isn't anything from Joel. This is the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Part of what frustrates me in studying Old Testament books is very few people take something like that and really believe it. When I say very few people, I mean the people writing the commentaries. Because they assume somebody somewhere was just writing something down. No, this is God's Word coming to us. Everything we hear is not the motivated by Joel, it's motivated by God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, in the New Testament side of things, makes clear what's going on. 
Second Peter 1, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's exactly what Joel is doing. The authority isn't in this man, Joel. The authority is in the one who brought the message to the man, Joel, which is God. And I couldn't help but thinking with such a simple statement, it identifies one of the great dangers of the church. People listen to the words of men at times and not the word of God. And far too many preachers are telling you what they think, not what the Word of God says. We don't have man-made wisdom that we have to craft together and do the best we can in a tough world. We have the very words of God. We have His wisdom. It can't be said enough, don't assume something is true even if I say it. Make sure it's in Scripture. Over and over in my mind, when I'm hearing things, I'm thinking things, come back to what is said in Acts 17.11. I don't remember the verse reference. I have to look it up, but I remember the words. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Bereans. Their church is named Berean. Every church seems to have a Berean Sunday school class. Why? For they received the word with great eagerness... So they listened to Paul, but this is the part that always is examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's what's so critical for you guys to do. If me or Pastor Steve or Bruce Mills or any of our other elders stop teaching the Word of God, you need to find another church. We all need to be driven by the Word of God and particularly as our world goes from bad to worse. And I think many of you feel like I do at times, that right now in America, we're on a roller coaster that twists and turns and we look ahead and the track's gone. We just don't know how long it's going to take before we crash. In this type of time, don't draw your strength from everybody who's got an opinion on the internet or on a podcast or on YouTube. Go back to the Word of God camp there. That's our authority. That's our comfort. Nothing else matters. Now, you'll hear me say over and over, including today, Joel said, Joel said, Joel was saying, and I mean that, but we don't need to lose sight of who's really saying, who's really talking, because the real messenger of the book is God Himself. So setting the stage for the lessons of Joel, first, the true messenger of Joel, and second, the target audience of the message. That's not carefully crafted or very eloquent, but it is what I'm trying to say, the target audience of the message. Who is Joel writing to? Begin in verse 2. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Now, Joel is being very comprehensive. Again, he's writing, we think, to the nation of Judah. It's possible that the northern kingdom, and I elaborated a little bit more last week, the northern kingdom of ten tribes may have already been pushed out, perhaps into captivity, but at the very least, he's writing primarily to the nation of Judah, referred to in the scriptures as the southern kingdom. 
And Joel, even though it's prophetic, he's writing in a poetic style. And quite often when he's saying things, I wish I understood Hebrew better, because his words have similar sounds and they're play on words. But he's being very descriptive and he's being very graphic. And in these verses, he's being very comprehensive. He starts with the elders of the land. Hear, O Israel, the elders. And he's really suggesting to them to pay attention to me. If you know the Shema from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear. In other words, pay attention. It's not just the act of listening. It means pay attention. He knows he's got exhortations from the Lord, warnings from the Lord, calls for repentance from the Lord, calls for reformation, and he's trying to get the attention. Hear, O elders, and probably hear, he's not likely talking just to old people. He's talking to the rulers, the leaders. Even after there was a king, there were still leaders of the people. For example, in 2 Kings 23 1, this is just an illustration of this. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. These were the people who were in charge, and he's saying to them, Listen up, upper echelon. But I said it was comprehensive. He continues, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Listen again, it's not trying to say something different than here. It's just a different word with that comprehensive meaning. But the idea is to pay attention, but also respond. Don't just comprehend the words. Prepare your hearts to do what's being said. You need to comprehend what's coming, says Joel, so that you can act on the word of the Lord. And when he says all inhabitants of the land, he means God's people. The literal geography of Israel is often referred to as the land. We talk about the promised land. That's not a wrong reference. But the land literally means all the people living in our country. In fact, there's a major newspaper in Israel, Haaretz. It's just the land today. And so he's appealing specifically to God's people. This isn't a generic anybody that can hear my voice. This is a message to God's children. That's why I was emphasizing that the message is to us, not just to everybody. We don't live in the land. But everybody that heard this was a part of God's people. And so he's calling out the leaders and he's calling out the inhabitants. He's basically saying, everybody listen to me. Because God has a word for you. He's calling everybody together. And he starts with a rhetorical question. And he's going to be appealing to the reality of what's going on in the culture around them. But he invites everybody to listen to this rhetorical question. Verse 2, the end of verse 2. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? We're going to see specifically what is occurring in verse 4. It was a plague. 
of locusts. But he's saying this is unprecedented. He knows the answer to the question, has anything like this ever happened? The answer is no. But he's starting them off calling attention to something that is unprecedented. In other words, something is occurring in your midst that's never occurred before, which should encourage you to hear and listen. The picture being painted is you could go back to your parents, I think you could go back to your grandparents and them before them and them before them and nobody's going to ever see what you're talking about here. In fact, the event is so profound, it'll be an object lesson for God's people for years to come. Verse 3, tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. In other words, this is such a jaw-dropping and society-changing circumstance that for years to come, we're going to be talking about this. It'll be discussed in the home. It'll be discussed in the daily life. People will say for generations, do you remember when? Do you remember that time? I remember my grandfather talking about when. That's what he's talking about. God has done that type of thing before. For example, a good example, and I won't read it, but if you went back and looked into Exodus with the plagues and all that was going on in Egypt. And God was saying, you'll be able to tell your sons and your sons' sons how I defeated the Egyptians. This is one of those occasions. Now for us, I just think about my life. I'm older than some of you. I'm younger than some of you. I was born in 1966. So, for example, in prayer, Dennis was talking about being in the service in Vietnam. I barely remember Vietnam. But I remember hearing stories even about World War II when my grandpa in his early 30s with little kids at home had to go away for three years. In my lifetime, I remember the impacts of Ronald Reagan and what he was doing coming out of the 70s and the 80s. And I remember 9-11 like it was yesterday and the changes that it wreaked in our society. And dare say we're living right now in the midst of one of those events with this pandemic. Whatever we think of it, it has restructured our society. So even in our history, we can, we can look back and talk about, well, I remember... And I remember, this transcended all of that. And that brings us to our last point. But really, it's setting the stage. First, the true messenger of Joel. Second, the target audience of the message. And third, the calamity and its consequences that inspired the message. That's a little cumbersome, but it's accurate the calamity and its consequences that inspired the message and this really covers from verse 4 through verse 12 and we'll pick up other parts after that but really that that's the calamity is set out in verse 4 and then the consequences are what follow and it'll take more than one week but i'm excited to go through this because some of the imagery i didn't pick up 
And I see now through study some things that I'm looking forward to sharing with you, but we won't get to it all today. But the calamity itself is fairly straightforward. It's verse 4, and again, it's poetic language. And I realize if you have a different version, the word in front of locust might be a different adjective, but verse 4 says, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And what Joel is painting is a picture of an unprecedented disaster for the land. In simple terms, wave after wave of a massive locust plague had come through and eaten everything. I think when you see gnawing locusts and swarming locusts and creeping locusts and stripping locusts, those are really just poetic descriptions of the same type of insect. And what was happening was through God's sovereign circumstances, this plague of locusts had come through and the first wave was devastating. But you could almost imagine coming out and saying, well, there's at least some, and then here comes the next wave. And say, oh, well, maybe there's something. And then the third. And then by the end of the fourth, there's nothing. We'll get into more details of that. But it was comprehensive. Every type of agriculture was wiped out. There's nothing left. In chapter 2, we'll see some different imagery. But I believe this is specifically real insects that did real damage. Damage to the society and every aspect of society that was so transformative that the people would have undoubtedly not known how we will ever recover. It's an interesting thing because Many times, there are biblical circumstances like this, catastrophic events that we can't really picture. If you're like me, when you read the story, even of something like crossing the Red Sea, I really can't comprehend that. Because what happens is the Hollywood movie jumps in my head. But I can't imagine going to a massive area and a wall of water just forming on either side, and I can walk through on dry land. I can't really imagine that. And there are other things like, you know, Elijah going to heaven in a chariot. I can sort of picture, except that I can't even a little bit. But a locust plague is something that you can go on the internet and you can watch one. There's videos out there. Locusts are still plaguing the earth. In fact, I did that. I read a lot about the destructive power of locusts. But you can go flip on video. I watched a locust swarm in India. I saw the locust swarm and the effects of one in Russia. And you see them in Africa. I've read about them happening even in California. And these creatures are remarkable. If you watch it, it sounds very weird. Because it's very loud. And you see these people filming and, and everything is almost a blur because there's so many insects. And this video I saw of this farmer in Russia would have probably been on the 
first wave of the locust, but he's standing there in his corn crop, and the stalks are messed up, the ears are messed up. There's nothing left to salvage. And as I looked at that, literally, I was thinking, that's probably the first wave of locusts. And then the second hits, and then the third and the fourth. And everything was ruined. And a locust plague of an immense fashion, unheard of fashion, that Joel, through the Lord, can say to the people, look, you're all listening to me now. Have you ever seen anything like this? You go back generations, nothing like this has ever happened to the land. If that happens today in a country, it's devastating. Again, the internet has all kinds of stuff. But you read articles, even now, you know, the UN tracks these things. And people get nervous because they see a swarm forming in one country of Africa. And if it gets going and isn't stopped, it's going to spread to other countries and people will starve. But if it happens today, we've got satellites, we've got TV, we've got the internet. You know, they load up planes from the UN. They start carrying stuff from other countries. But in the days of Joel, and this is what is important, there was no plan B. There was no UN. There was no backup. And the land of Judah was an agricultural economy. That's what they were. What little bit of trading historically they could do was because they could grow olives and have olive oil and perhaps trade that. Or they could grow grapes and have wine to trade or perhaps they could trade flour or wheat or barley and things like that. But it was all wiped out overnight with no warning and it's gone. An agricultural society lives and dies by the seasons. Even one season of drought is difficult. But here's a situation where not only did it destroy the crops, it destroyed the trees, imagine a fruit tree. If it doesn't produce this year, it'll grow next year no more. They even ate the bark off of it, as we'll read later, such that it was exposed, meaning those trees would likely die. So this wasn't just temporary damage. This was wiping out not just this year's harvest, but next year and the year after. It's as though we were to wake up and find out in an instant that every grocery store was empty, money had no value, and America was landlocked and nobody could bring us anything. Despondent. Despair. And in the midst of that type of calamity, it's as though Joel, like God's prodding, is standing up in the middle of everybody and saying, Hey, you see what's happening God's going to speak to you in the midst of this. You better listen up. As we'll see as we study, God was sovereignly in control. In fact, God brought about this locust plague to get to His people's hearts. Because as we'll see from the warnings and of the writing, they were God's people in God's land but it appears that their hearts had grown cold. Many commentators suggest that it was actually a time of plenty.
plenty and prosperity before the locust. Such that people were feeling pretty good. They had security. Their bellies were full. They had disposable income, so to speak, in our modern vernacular. And God in His sovereignty allowed it all to be wiped away in an instant. I can tell you, as I read these things, it should give us pause when we look around at our society. Because while we are in no way as desperate as the recipients of this letter, we can see ourselves security that we thought we had being stripped away at every turn. I'm going to tell you something that I'm saying for my benefit, not just yours. We're spoiled in America. God has blessed us beyond anything we could comprehend. A few visits with brothers and sisters that love the Lord in other countries that are hoping to eat that day would make us all feel ashamed of what we complain about. But the reality is in Judah at that time everything shifted under their feet overnight and I think we're in the midst of something similar. Again, I can not remember the Great Depression but I remember hearing stories my dad would tell. His parents were immigrants to America and they were dirt poor. And I remember stories my mom tells when she was a little girl because they didn't have power and they didn't have indoor plumbing and they didn't have water. It was going out to a well to get those things. So I, so I get it. I understand something of the Great Depression because my parents lived through it. I lived through the recession of 2007. It cost Debbie and I basically everything we had. I know people are suffering today because the pandemic has wiped out so many businesses around the world. It's shocking. And while many of us have been blessed and we're doing okay, there are others of us who have been devastated and entire industries have gone away. What's my point? You take all of that and you fold it together and it's still not as bad as what happened to the land. But God wanted to get the attention of His people who were not looking at Him and He allowed everything they had and all their security to be wiped away overnight so that they would turn back to Him. And let me encourage us that rather than just being annoyed and frustrated, which I am and many of you are, at watching the ground shift underneath us in our country and our world, at least entertain the possibility that God's sovereign and He's bringing this about so that His children will turn back to Him. And that those of us who have gotten sidetracked and complacent would recognize that maybe God's trying to get our attention because what we think we're entitled to can be stripped away overnight and we can't shake our fist at God, the sovereign king of the world. So let me encourage you, even now, before we get into next week, greater consequences of what this devastation did to society 
And I will tell you, it was an economic impact. It was a leisure activity impact. It was a worship impact. It was a, are we going to live because we don't have food type of impact. And begin to recognize how some of what's going on with us today could be God's attempt to get our attention. Let me close us in prayer and we'll pick up here next week. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, my heart is so easily distracted by what's going on in the world that I can miss the reality that you're sovereign over all of it. I spend so much time looking at other people and other things and being frustrated by, by the government or by politics or by other things that I ignore in my own heart that things, things might be occurring because you want my attention. Lord, if that's the case with any of my brothers and sisters here, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, we are tired of the pandemic. We're tired of the restrictions. We're tired of the rapid and increasing moral decay of our society. We're tired of all of it, Lord, and yet you're sovereign. Help us not to miss why you may be allowing these things to occur. I pray as we continue to wade into the study of Joel that you'll give me insight and wisdom so that I'm just proclaiming your word. But I pray that each one of us will hear, that will listen, and you'll use your word to transform our hearts so that in the midst of wherever this upheaval of our society goes, we will be your lights and your witnesses and your testimony. Lord, help us to have the faith to trust you. We love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.